Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Um, we have an author, an LDS author on the podcast, Dr. Sean Tucker, to talk about his new book. Welcome to the podcast, Sean. Thank you for having me. I'm honored, honored to be here. Um, Sean is joining us. Um, he lives in um, North Carolina, in Elon, North Carolina, which I think is east of Greensboro. But he's joining us while visiting his son. You're in Manhattan, New York right now. Is that right? Yes, yes. Listeners, let me introduce um, Dr. Sean Tucker. He, um, he was born in Ogden, He grew up, but he grew up in Sterling, Virginia. He served in the Santiago North Mission. That's in Chile from 1987 to 1989. So that puts him in his early um, 50s. He graduated with a degree in humanities from Brigham Young University. Um, he married Nicole Jones there. They're the parents of four kids and two grandkids. He has a master's degree and a doctorate, both in humanities from Florida State University. And he's taught at Elon University, a four-year private university since 2000. He's written four books, um, some scholarly books and some for the LDS community that we're both a part of. But we're going to talk about his book, Humility. A practical approach. And so that'll be the focus of this podcast. I'm, I'm excited to learn more about this book. I hope we all check it out and help us to do better as Latter-day Saints within our community. Talk a little bit about um, just the goal of the book. Um, most authors decide to write a book with a goal in mind. Um, originally, the goal was to make a lot of money. <laughs> no, not, not at all. Um, I... Um, <laughs> Funny, my my patriarchal blessing warns me, of, you know, to be humble. So I've always sort of like, so what does that exactly mean? Um, thought about that, you know, ever since being a missionary and ever since. And so I um, actually, so back in 2010, I got a grant to develop a college course called Pride, Humility, and the Good Life. Um, and it was just a great course. Uh, it's a junior, senior level seminar. And we would we would look at paintings that deal with humility and pride, and we would read read literature and philosophy and all sorts of stuff. And it was it was just great. So in the course of in the course of um, de- teaching that class, I developed ideas about not just pride and humility, but how it might apply to to our faith tradition. And and then my daughter, when she was on my second daughter, when she was on her mission, she made the uh, fatal mistake of asking for her father's ideas about humility. Nine letters later, I had sort of mapped out what I thought humility is. Um, and um, so that sort of became the, the basis of, of this book. And, and what I really hope for the book is that I hope that it provides just practical, down-to-earth insights into what humility is and how we can develop it. I like books about humility. Um, tell us, and I'm going to ask you some more questions. Um, wh- this is, I think this is a book individually that I should read and could read. And and I assume it helps me look inward to see things that I perhaps need to change to be more humble and thoughtful. What's the, as we all do that collectively within the LDS community and with other communities, what's the benefit to us as a faith to be more humble? Um, one of them is that I think that with humility comes a lot of peace. Um, when, when we're not humble, well, one of the ways to think of this too, is that 
President Benson in his very famous talk about pride, um, which relies heavily on C.S. Lewis's ideas about pride. Um, one of the things that he says is that the opposite of pride is enmity. Well, this is a hard word to get your mind around in English um, because we just don't use it very much. Um, enmity is actually the opposite of friendship. Um, we don't have the English word enemy ship, but that's a boat from the other Navy. Um, enmity means seeing somebody as the enemy. When we are, when we have, when we are full of pride in our relationship to God, then we see God as the enemy. Instead of seeing God as a partner, instead of seeing God as someone who's, who, in spite of all the difficulties, really wants what's best for us, we, we see God as the enemy. When in our relationships, uh, this also happens. When we see other people as the enemy, that is pride. Um, humility is choosing to see people as friends, um, which, I mean, and that's the best. Friends don't always agree. Uh, friends sometimes seriously disagree. But there's a fundamental respect and affection and commitment to the best for each other. Uh, and that is exactly what humility provides. I love that. Um, I introduced you with the bio, but tell us more about yourself, Dr. Tucker, and a little bit more about how this book came to be and and maybe where people can find it. Listeners will put a link to it in the show notes so you can find it and buy it if you want to. Yeah, so um, again, I was, my parents are members of the church, um, you know, lots of family from way back. Um, I was a member of the church, active member of the church growing up in Northern Virginia. Um, my most important early life accomplishment was I was the Oakton Stake DJ for the youth dances. I know that doesn't seem like much, but if you grew up in Oakton, those dances were a big deal. Um, that was really fun. Um, I uh, just, you know, I, I was served as a missionary, went to BYU. Just, I've, I've had different callings, taught seminary for a while, but just sort of just a pretty generic, regular member of the church. Um, you know, nothing nothing that sort of sticks out. Tell us more about how the book came to be then. Um, you're, yeah, so, you're underselling uh, yourself because um, you've got a master's degree and a doctorate degree and um, are doing wonderful things professionally and in our faith community. So I think that's pretty cool, even though you didn't mention that. I'm going to mention it. But tell yeah. us uh, more um, about how this book came to be. So, um, so originally, I, I put together this book and, um, and it started with these letters to my daughter about humility. And then um, I sent it to the Maxwell Institute and they were like, yeah, all right, we want to print this. Um, and then like a year or two went by and I went back and I was like, hey, how's it going? And they're like, oh, yeah, we forgot about this. Never mind. We don't want to print it. And which was a little disappointing. I'm not going to lie. That's honest. Um, but the guy that I worked with, Blair Hodges, who's amazing, he said, you know, looking at this, I know where you're going with this, but if you're going to write for a popular audience, there's some things that you can really learn about doing this more effectively. Um, and of course I said, no way, I'm not listening. I didn't say that because that would not be very humble. Um, he had a lot of great insights and really his, his, his advice was pivotal uh, because then I went back and I really studied how to write books for a popular audience as opposed to an academic audience. And it was quite the learning curve for me. So I wrote this for, the, for this audience. Um, I sent it to the Maxwell Institute and they were like, yeah, we still don't want to publish it. Um, but they said, hey, you might want to try Deseret Book. This sort of sounds like it's down there, Allie. 
and so they were gracious enough to connect with people there. And they said, yeah, no, we don't want to publish it. Um, and then the gracious, wonderful people at Viacom and Consent Press, they looked it over and they said, we would absolutely want to publish it. So I was very excited. And I've really, it, it's really been a great experience working with them. I like that you hung in there. I mean, a lot of people would say, um, if they're not even going to respond, I'm just not going to do this book. And there's maybe a little pride in that. Like, you know, I'm going to show them by just not writing it. Um, but well, I know Blair Hodges, terrific guy. And I love just, and I think this is good for younger listeners to just recognize that this wasn't linear for you to get this book produced. And it's, um, took, um, and you were kind of turned down and you're like professionally, um, have a lot of street cred, but then to be turned down by a couple of publishers and, um, our friends that be by common consent, be, I always get those, I always add the wrong vowel. BCC, <laughs> um, saw the value in it and they produced wonderful content. So I'm grateful that they published it. Yeah. One of the things that you learn doing a PhD is, I mean, that the P and PhD should stand for persistence. Um, <laughs> Because it's it's for everyone that does it, it's a long haul, and it, there's it seems like on average there's two and a half crises that happen in the process of doing it, um, and that that does kind of train you for you know if something means something to you, you're going to have to push through a lot of obstacles. So, um, talk about um, and again, listeners, the book is called Humanity: A Practical Approach. What are some of the common um, LDS misunderstandings about humility? So I think one of the most common misunderstandings, and, and after I say this, it's going to be really obvious. One of the most common misunderstandings is that there's a huge difference between humility in one's relationship with God versus humility in one's relationship with other human beings. And again, that just sort of sounds, well, of course. I mean, you're humble towards God in ways that are much more absolute and full. Um, we should never be humble towards another human being the same way that we are towards God. But the problem is, because we use the same term, then we end up saying, well, am I being humble in my relationship with my wife? Am I being humble in my relationship with these other people, with my bishop? And the problem is, the same humility that we think of is all the same, whether it's with God or with these other human beings. And so I, I think that there's... That's, there's a huge difference uh, in those. It's, it's almost like the concept of faith. I mean, we always say, you know, it's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that is that saves us. Um, you know, you can have faith in lots of different things. And we understand that faith in the Lord is a very specific, important thing. And other forms of faith are, are what they are. The same with humility. Humility in your relationship with God is a very specific, very particular thing. Uh, humility in other sorts of places or contexts is similar, but quite different. Um, build on that. Now you've got my interest because I, you know, somebody told me, um, I'm in Utah listeners and snow um, means, if, you know, the word snow is applied to lots of different things. And someone told me, and some of you may be Alaskan, they have a lot more vocabulary for snow um, because there's a lot more variance in snow. And they've developed vocabulary around that. And I don't have vocabulary. Snow is just snow and ice is ice and sleet. There's not much variance there. But I think you're helping us understand the word humility um, 
has a lot of different uh, meanings. So maybe, yeah, talk about humility like to a spouse or to a priesthood leader. Um, yeah, so and that's another place where there's a distinction. There's um, hum- humility is really different in your relationships with equals as opposed to unequal relationships. Now, the first thought is like, wait, why is anybody in an unequal relationship? Like that doesn't that doesn't sound like a good idea. But we all are all the time. Yeah. Parents have an unequal relationship with their children. Bosses with employees, therapists with clients, teachers with students church leaders with church members. Those are unequal relationships. And the, the humility that's involved in those is, is, is different. Um, uh, a boss, uh, employees are humble towards a boss. Um, again, it doesn't mean that you just do whatever a boss says, um, but you know, you, you, the same thing goes for a parent or a church leader or a therapist, any of these people, they're there to help you out, but they're, they help you by you paying attention, being committed, being listening and attending to what it is that they tell you to do, right? And that's that's how that goes. Then there's relationships of equals, um, like siblings, spouses, and friends. Now, what happens is, because we're not used to relationships of equals, we tend to just, even in those relationships, we tend to just, like, go back and forth between parent-child, 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 you know? instead of truly sort of seeing each other as equals. And the same thing goes, especially with spouses, right? One spouse should never parent the other spouse. Um, that's, that's just, that doesn't work for either one of them. And there's quite a bit of discussion about this in the book. And so the idea of being like humble towards your spouse, like submissive, like a little child is submissive to their father, that does not apply at all. That should never be the case. Um, and it's too bad we don't have a different word for that, for humility in a relationships of equals, just like what you're saying about snow, um, that, that we, then, you know, yeah, then humility in your relationship with God. Um, and you can imagine, you know, if you're, if you're, you're, you're having a conflict with your spouse, you're like, well, maybe I should be more humble. And, and you're thinking of that same sort of humility that you have towards God. It's like, no, that's not, that's not helpful. That's not, that's not getting you towards the place where you should, where you want to be. It's really helpful. Um, talk of, now. I'm drawn to relationships that are just by the reality of the relationship aren't equal, quote unquote. Um, a boss, a parent, a church leader. What are what advice do you have for people in those roles? And I guess we all are in those roles. Um, yes. At some point in our life, we're in relationships where you know we're in charge, I guess, or have more authority or more um, privilege. What advice yeah, do you I, have for people in those roles to be effective and be humble? Yeah, and, there, and again, there's quite a bit of discussion about this in the book. But when 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 someone has a leadership role, like I'm a professor, um, I give us assignments to my students. I expect them to do them. I carefully calibrate them to to foster the sort of growth that I want in my students. And doing it a long time, I'm much better at doing that. Um, uh, and you know, I'm pretty successful at that the same thing happens with parents, you know, parents, good parents want to put their children in places where they can be successful all the time. Um, sometimes we don't do that. We were just at the fireworks the other night. Uh, there were families at the fireworks, uh, here in Manhattan. It was really fun. 
some of them, I think it brought some children that were a little on the young side and those kids were not in a place where they could be successful. And so, you know, sometimes we make that mistake, but, but that's what parents want to do is put people um, and, and do that. And the same goes with church leaders and therapists and all these sorts of people. And I, I actually think that as members of the church, we're pretty good at being like church members, um, students, pupils, players on a team, uh, these other sorts of roles of, of, of being very attentive, of listening to the feedback and the advice that we get, trying to incorporate it and learn and grow. I think the only thing that, that, that might be difficult is sometimes understanding moments when we should resist, you know, when we should, when we should be wise enough to sort of consider the advice or the feedback that we're getting and um, careful about how to follow it and how to study it and how to go forward with it successfully. Um, a thought came to my mind to ask you this question. You've been a professor at Elon University for 20 years, um, two decades. So um, what what would you tell your younger self, um, the 20, the, the early version of yourself to in this space to help you be more effective? Um, I assume you've learned some things in the world of being more humble that you would, you know, you would teach your younger self? That's kind of an out of left field question. So there you go. <laughs> no, that, that, that is a really good one because being a professor is this balance between, you know, trying to push students to get the best from them. You know, in some ways I feel like a coach, you know, you, you, you establish exercises or drills or other sorts of activities to really push them to, to develop the skills and to just be excellent. Um, but then at the same time, you have to you, you have to balance that with being patient for them to grow into the skills that it is that, that you want them to acquire. Um, and I, I, if I were going to speak to my you know two decades ago self, I would probably just talk a little bit more about that. That's exactly what I'm doing, you know, just so that it's a little bit more. I'm a little bit more cognizant that that is exactly what I'm doing. I'm trying to put these 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 students in places where they can push themselves and grow and learn. But at the same time, it has to be at a, at a pace um, that, is, that is really going to be beneficial and that is sustainable long-term. And so as I hear that answer, I'm hearing I'm not a sort of opening doors, but they've got to walk through the door that you're not pushing them through the door, which sometimes as parents or as people, we want to, have these outcomes or we see the open door and we want to kind of lead them through the door. I'm, I'm sense. And maybe sometimes that's exactly what somebody needs. I don't want to rule that out, especially as a parent situation or a local leader, but I sense some, um, maybe our job as leaders is to open doors and create opportunity, but people for, in the long run to be successful need to kind of walk through those doors and learn how to do those and develop those skills on their own. Yeah, yeah. And um, again, one of the things I talk about is this. I have a, a colleague that teaches ceramics and um, he, he has this approach to teaching called like benevolent or benign neglect with um, well-timed moments of intervention. Um, he leaves his students alone a lot to just sort of work through things, but then he's always attentive to what's happening. And, and just just at the right moments, he'll go and just give a little nudge, give a little insight, just a, a little push so that they themselves can sort of continue to move forward and grow. He's, 
is really an amazing instructor. And would you call that being humble? What? Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Because I would, until I've talked to you in this podcast, I would use a different attribute to describe that behavior. But I think you're help, one of the things you're helping me and maybe listeners is broaden our definition of the word humility. Well, and, and fundamentally, the definition of humility that the book puts forward is that humility is dedication, commitment, um, submission, especially when it relates to the Lord. Um, and you know, the, 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 the basic expression of humility is, you are the Lord my God. Um, and it's complete and total dedication, commitment, and submission to the Lord. Um, so then go back to this teacher, how does this reflect humility? Because he is completely dedicated, completely committed to the growth of his students. Um, he sees them, he doesn't see them as objects to be moved around. He sees them as humans. Um, he's not of our faith, um, but he's someone who I think helps students uh, embrace their highest divine celestial potential, at least in this area of their life, um, because of the way that he, that he attends to them, that, he, that he's present for them. Um, all of which are, are expressions of love, and they're ultimately this 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 wonderful humility. It's really cool. Do you want to talk about implications of that style for parenting or for local leaders? Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> with I think that with parenting, you know, and I, I don't know. I, I think I think most parents do this. You know, I. Uh, I, the parents that I'm around, they they love their kids. They're attentive to their kids. They, you know, I mean, there's times when we're all tired or impatient or, you know, these other sorts of things happen to us. Um, but, but at our best, which is almost all the time, we're attentive to our kids. We're trying to put them in places where they can be successful. Um, uh, I think that, I think that one of the things that sometimes we fall into doing is, you know, we, sometimes we end up kind of falling into using the devil's tools to do the Lord's work. And when I say that, I mean things like pride, fear, and manipulation. Um, pride is by saying things to kids like, well, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, you're, you're, uh, you're a member of the church, so the Lord expects more of you. Um, well, that is just flattery. That's just pride. Um, and it just sort of encourages children to be like, well, I'm better than the rest of you people. That's why I have to keep the commandments. Um, well, I'm better than you people. That's why I don't drink. I'm better than you. That's why I don't swear or sleep around or do these other sorts of things. It's because I'm better than you. And I think that that's using the devil's tools to try to do the Lord's work. Um, it's, it's flattering them. It's telling them that they're somehow so special that they shouldn't do these things. And C.S. Lewis actually talks about this. And he says, he says that the devil laughs when we do this because when, when, we, when we cure kids of these smaller sins and then give them this greater sin, it's like, it's like the devil saying, well, I mean, I'll cure your cough if I can give you cancer. Um, pride is, you know, and looking down on other people is just so much more serious than, you know, having a word of wisdom situation or swearing or something like that. Um, you, know, you know, seeing other people as beneath you or as your enemy that's just that's just a much more fundamentally non-Christian view than you know than, than these other sorts of problems. And I think in general, parents avoid that, you know. But again, sometimes we're like, we'll use fear or we'll use um, a little bit of manipulation. Um, those are 
sometimes they're just too easy of tools to use. Sometimes we've seen other people use them. Um, but I think that in general, we don't. We, 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 we want them to feel free. We want them to embrace the blessings of the gospel and make covenants all on their own and be self-supporting and sustainable and do things because of their relationship with God. And we, we work all through their lifetime to make them increasingly more independent. It's a really good segment. One of the things, and this is kind of off topic, that I think a lot about on my morning walks, um, Sean and listeners, is just dissatisfaction. Excuse me. Um, what I mean by that is people that step away from the church. And I used to kind of think, listeners, that if once if we could get people to the temple and on their mission, it was kind of um, a done deal that they would stay in the church for the rest of their life. And and there's um, great programs and great support system to get a lot of youth um, to those key milestones in their life, which I love, um, the temple and serving a mission. But being connected with the YSAs and just so many that I talk to, that, that post-mission 20s and early 30s group is a group that, I don't know the numbers, but it seems like we're losing more of those. And I wonder if some of it's kind of unforced errors, um, some of the perhaps not major manipulative things, but minor manipulative things that Sean's that kind of that share that make us feel special or or elevate us above other people that kind of fall apart um, a little bit as YSAs age up and see good in other religions, see good in other people. Um, some of the groups that we've talked negatively about, they get to meet up close and personal, and they have different feelings than they were taught as youth and. So I'm not a scientist or a social scientist or even going to do a dissertation on this because I'm too old for all that research. But I think about what we could do, some of the things that you just suggested, Sean, in our younger years that cause them to have a more sustainable relationship with the church that's just based on our beautiful restored doctrine that in itself um, sustains my testimony without... Um, elevating myself over other groups of people or feeling I'm better or more special or even more valiant in the pre-earth life. I've heard that at Sunday school, Sean, is that I was born into the covenant because I actually was more valiant in the pre-earth life. And we don't teach that doctrinally, but some of that stuff creeps up in our culture and it makes us all feel really good in Sunday school if we were born in the covenant. But I don't think it's particularly helpful in the long run um, to maintain just this humility you're talking about. So I don't know if you any got any thoughts on that or want to, um, or we can just kind of move on. I, I think that that's, I think that that's a very serious, ugly thing when we do it and we do it in the church all the time. Uh, sadly, once you start to listen for it, you say, well, you're a Royal generation, uh, or, you know, and this whole, like you were generals in this, in the war in heaven before, like, there were military ranks. I mean, <laughs> is that how we were like, did we march? Did we have guns? Like that whole, that metaphor just doesn't really even seem to work. Um, and, and anything, there's, there's a quite a bit of discussion about this. Anytime that people say, well, you are special. Like you should hear, you should hear the footsteps of fear and manipulation, you know, at, behind those sorts of statements. Um, uh, and I, I feel really fortunate that when I was, when I was growing up, um, I had a lot of doubts. Um, and I think that my, I know that my parents knew that, but they loved me enough to leave me alone. Um, I, I felt very strongly that my parents, you know, they, 
they prayed for me every night. They wept for me that they wanted the best for me. Um, but they, they felt that what was best for me was to just leave me to, to, to work things out myself. I, I had friends from all sorts of different religions. I, I went to churches with them. I read all sorts of philosophical stuff. And, and I felt like my parents loved me enough to, to, to let me work it out. Um, I never felt them anxious or fearful or needing to maneuver me or manipulate me. And, and because of that, it put, it instilled a lot of confidence in me that I could do this, that I could work with the Lord and I could solve these problems and that I could move forward. And, and so then, you know, when I was a missionary and later on, as I've encountered so many different people, it comes as no surprise that the Lord is active in everybody's life. Um, and just as active in anybody's life as, as any member of the church. Uh, and it's, it's very reassuring for me to know how much God loves each and every one of the parents of our heavenly, of the children of our heavenly parents, and that those parents are actively involved in everybody's life, and that I am not special. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm unique. I have unique things to do, but I'm not special. That was a. There's some nuggets in there that you know I'll probably think about on my morning walk. But I I think a lot about what we can do as parents with kids in their when we really have influence on them to some extent, you know, in their teens and obviously before their teens. And that um, influence, maybe direct influence on day-to-day conversations decreases, although prayers and things that we do, temple attendance can have tremendous impact on our adult kids. So I don't want to change the equation or have influence. It's just less maybe direct as we just let them self-determine. But I love some of the things your parents did. Um, and I think sometimes you know, in our efforts to keep our kids in the church, that may work, but I worry we don't build some of the skills that your parents built into you during that time frame that have helped you navigate seeing good in other religions, the complexity of own religion, a more sustainable way. And everybody's personality and parenting style is different. So I don't want to create the feeling there's one correlate way to do this, but I think parents should act on impressions they feel. Um, why do you stay in our church when you see good in other churches and you don't feel special? Um, you're a committed member of the church. So some listeners may say, well, some list, I mean, some may feel, you know, people in other churches aren't happy and God's not working through them. And he's only, I'm only going to be happy in this faith and God's only going to talk to me. So why, why are you in this faith? Well, yeah, for me, and this is, this is just a great question. I mean, uh, at this point, uh, I feel like this is my home, uh, and I feel like this is where God wants me. If I if I woke up tomorrow and felt like the Lord wanted me working or serving or taking a different path, I hope that I would have the humility and the faith sufficient to follow that path. Um, but, you know, this is where I feel at home, and this is where I get to contribute. Um, and I, I just... <laughs> I feel really blessed that these people will have me. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I'm, I don't know. I'm kind of, I kind of weirdo. I got a weird sense of humor, and I love my North Carolina ward because it's just a huge variety of people, and they, they just, they welcome me, and and I feel at home there, and I'm really grateful for the people that I get to minister to, and that I get to work with, and you know, I just, I just feel like this is where the Lord wants me, and again. That's that's where I'm at. You know, I, I I love the doctrine. I love I have a testimony of, of all the teachings. I love all that stuff. 
um, fundamentally, it's just, I feel like this is where the Lord wants me. So it's a great answer. Um, so thank you for that. And a lot of our listeners perhaps are trying to think of, figure out an authentic way to stay in our church as they're working through complicated things. So your example is helpful. Um, talk a little bit about, I'm going to ask you a question here about the book's description. You say something interesting. You say the book talks about, quote, a mastodon hunter named Doug, who is the reason you sometimes feel inadequate. What in the world did you mean by that? And I hope <laughs> okay, I said so, mastodon correctly. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Okay, so so you have to picture these three hunters. They're mastodon hunters. They're in the grass. They see this mastodon in the distance. They've got their spears. They're all working together. You know, on the signal, they all hurl their spears. They hit this mastodon. Um, they hit it, but it's not enough to sort of bring it down. So they've got to chase it down, follow it, you know, finish finish the job so that they can take this mastodon back to their group. And it's going to be great. Right? It's going to help provide food and everything that this group needs. Right. Except here's the problem. There's supposed to be four mastodon hunters. Right. But one of them. It's just he fell asleep and he needed a break and he needed a little me time. And so he's he didn't he wasn't there to help out. Right. He's he's and his name is Doug. Right. This is Doug. Uh, he's kind of lazy. He's kind of unreliable. Um, he's just he's kind of a slacker, you know, and people are like, we really need your help. And Doug's like, well, yeah, I'll, I'll really try to make it. But he doesn't. Right. And so um, so. Doug, what do we what do we do about the situation with Doug, right? Um, how do you solve a problem like Doug? Um, because Doug actually turns out to be a big problem. Because once Doug gets back to camp or whatever, he's still going to be eating the meat. Um, but but the problem is, like the three hunters, they're going to be upset because Doug wasn't there to help. They had to do a lot more work because he wasn't there. They, um, the, the, everyone's going to get this meat, um, but they're like, why should I keep working when he is slacking, you know? And, and, and it, it really sort of brings the group down. Another example of this is like, especially with my college kids, if I ever want them to really hate me, I have them do group projects. Um, especially if I assign the groups at random, students just hate this. And the reason for that is because of the dugs in the group, um, the, the people in the group who just don't do their part, right? Who don't really contribute like they're supposed to, because this gives extra work to other people, but it's also really discouraging. Um, it, it, it just, you know, it just, nobody in the group wants to work hard. And actually, if my students did group work, the learning outcomes can be much stronger having a bunch of people work together than just as individuals. The same with this hunting a mastodon. No individual could kill a mastodon and drag it back. It takes a group. But, the, but you really need this group to all work together. And the dugs of the group are really a problem. They're a problem because they can bring down the morale of the whole group. They take without contributing. Um, and again, if you get enough of these, it can make the group fall apart. Uh, it can make it so it, it's at least not as effective. And it ultimately threatens the group itself, right? So to, so this is a big problem. The technical term for this is the free rider problem, right? It's a real phenomenon, but we'll just call it the Doug dilemma. So there's two solutions to the Doug dilemma. You could kill him. Now, 
I know that doesn't sound like a great solution right off, right? There's a whole moral ambiguity, right? <laughs> but if you kill Doug, you make it clear that the group is not going to stand for that stuff, right? Right off the bat. Uh, if you kill Doug, you also, um, you get rid of one more mouth to feed, right? Um, and you, you, you make this, again, you make this strong statement. But I think a lot of us are uncomfortable killing Doug, right? Part of the problem is that then once you start to kill Doug, like when is this going to stop? It's, it's, it's all sorts of stuff, right? So we'll take killing Doug off the list. But those three hunters, when they're coming back with this mastodon, what is it that they're going to do? They're going to talk trash about Doug the whole way back, right? Because they're, because they're frustrated, they're angry, they're tired. They did all this work because Doug refused to do his part. And once they get back to camp, what are they going to do? They're going to tell, they're going to make sure everybody knows that they did all this work and that Doug wasn't there. They're essentially going to gossip about Doug. Now, this seems like a terrible idea, but gossip is actually pretty darn effective, right? Doug is going to get the message pretty quickly that he need that that what he said is what he did is not up to snuff with the group, right? And um, he's not going to get the best portions of meat. Uh, he's not going to like if if he does sort of marry, he's not going to get the best high status mate or anything like that. Like all this is going to happen as a consequence of this stuff. Gossip is very effective in, in sanctioning this. The other thing is that, let's say they start to gossip about Doug, and Doug realizes, wow, this is a problem. And what if Doug changes his ways, right? Doubles his efforts. Well, then suddenly this gossip did a great thing because now Doug is working and contributing. Now everybody's learned this great lesson about how everybody should contribute, right? Um, now everybody's pitched in even more, and gossip was the thing that did that, right? And it seems, again, it seems terrible. Right. Um, so on the other side of Doug, you have people that are really effective in the group. We'll call those people Beverly's. The Beverly's work really hard and they have a reputation for working hard, for contributing, for doing a lot of stuff. And there's also going to be gossip about Beverly's, but it's going to be positive gossip. Right. So now you've got this group uh, and they're talking trash about the people that are doing poorly. They're saying really positive things to one another about the people that work hard. They're going to teach their children these lessons. Oh, be like Beverly. Don't be like Doug. Like, this is what's going to be part of the group, right? And, but there's more to this. Now you've got everybody judging the Dougs and everybody judging the Beverly's. You've also got the Dougs judging themselves, hopefully, and the Beverly's judging themselves, hopefully. And now you have this group where everybody is judging everybody, including themselves, and everybody is comparing themselves with everybody else, right? which again, just sounds horrible, right? But the question is, how do you solve the Doug dilemma? What other way is there to solve that free rider problem, right? How do you make it so the Dougs all participate, all do their part, right? So, um, so this is this group and this is this thing. Well, see, here's what happens. Society is a big group like the Doug group, right? Your ward is a big group. Your family's a big group. These are all groups, and they all deal with the same free rider problem, right? Every ward, that's the same thing, is everybody can contribute. Who's contributing? How are they contributing? We look at this all the time. We're constantly vigilant about this, right? Um, and again, in some ways, it looks like the natural man comparing, judging, 
um, gossiping all around. But there's a good reason for this. It's because society needs to solve this problem. And that problem is the free rider problem. And if we're forgetting how important that is, remember those group projects. We, we can't afford to have too many people not doing their part because now you're not, not just your group project in your, in your class falls apart, but society falls apart and families fall apart and wards fall apart, right? So this is a big situation and it has to be dealt with, right? And gossiping is still better than killing. Um, and there isn't sort of another solution for this. So now we, we start to look at this and we realize that everybody's judging everybody. Everybody's looking at everybody. Everybody's comparing everybody. And everybody has this internalized standard, right? But, um, and some people are going to feel like they don't add up. Like they're going to judge themselves and compare themselves. And they're going to feel inadequate. And they're going to feel all this stuff. And that's exactly what we have. That's exactly what we have in society. Everybody from time to time feels like they don't measure up, like they're inadequate. Um, or they feel other sorts of things. They feel jealous of this person, or they feel envious of this person, or they feel superior to this person. And we have all of these, all of these problems that are there, right? Um, and so we have, again, we have this, that's the dove dilemma, right? It's the free rider problem. And that's how it brings us to the place where we're at. Um, and that's how society is. In other words, this feeling that we're inadequate, this comparing and judging, it is built into the way society is, and there's no way around it. It is the water in which we swim, um, and there's no way of getting out of the water. So when we talk about judging and comparing and looking down, and we, we say that we shouldn't do this, that's all fine and good, except society wires all of us to do it all the time. Um, so how do we deal with this? right? That's the dilemma, and that's why it's there. So in the book, I, prov I provide three practical solutions to the Doug dilemma, like how do you deal with the situation, right, as an individual, when you feel inadequate or you feel like you're comparing or you're judging or whatever, right? So let me give you an example first. Last Sunday, I went to church with my son. We're in the young single adult ward in Manhattan. That's a great word. <laughs> yes, yes, it's a great word. That's its problem. There are all these young, super accomplished kids True. doing all sorts of fabulous stuff. And you just sit there and you go, oh my gosh, and you feel inadequate. Um, you see this person who's at Juilliard and this person who's doing this thing and this person who's doing this thing. And you're like, holy cow, when I was that age, I wasn't doing any of that stuff, right? Um, and, and you do. Uh, the other thing, now this is just me. I'm a 53-year-old elder. And you talk a lot about this in your fabulous book about improving LDS culture, about you know not aspiring to colleagues and stuff like that. Wonderful. Wish it was me. Wish I never did it, right? <laughs> um, but it, I'm still cognizant of that. And right. when I'm in a singles ward or any place like that, I'm like, this guy's a bishop. I've never been there, right? It's and it seems stupid and petty, right? But again, I think back on that and like, that's because of Doug. It's all Doug's fault. It's because of the free rider. It's because we, we are socially wired to judge, compare, and look around all the time. And there's good reasons for that. Okay, so three solutions, three practical solutions to the Doug dilemma. They all start with H. The last one's going to be humility. But we'll build to that, okay? The first one is honesty. Um, so what I mean by this is that when I feel jealous or envious or inadequate or something like that, the first thing I do is I say, 
I'm feeling jealous. I just, I recognize this thing. I give it a name and I put it right out there in front of me, right? Um, and I, I, you know, I, I recognize that this is what's going on. And I got to tell you, just doing that is super helpful because it takes this amorphous, cloudy fog and it substantiates it into something concrete that I can look at and see. And then I'm not caught up in the thing. Then I can actually look at the thing and I can say, oh, I'm feeling jealous. Oh, I'm feeling this. And then I can say to myself, why is this? It's because of Doug. It's because of the free rider problem. It's because society needs me to look at other people and to compare, right? And I wish I didn't, but I'm actually wired to do that. And it has an important social function. So the first thing I do is I'm honest with myself. This is what I'm experiencing. And I think about those feelings. The other reason for being honest about it is that these feelings of jealousy are sort of like a bomb, right? And if you just pretend the bomb's not there, then it's just going to go off whenever, <laughs> right? But if you actually take time and examine, this is why I'm feeling this way. It's a consequence of the free rider problem. It's because socially I'm wired to do this. Then I can look at the bomb and I can dismantle it. I, can, I, can, I know which wires to pull, which one to tug, and which one to do this to. So then it, doesn't, it isn't a bomb that can just sort of blow up, right? Honestly, just assessing and being clear about my feelings are very helpful. It's much better than just walking around. I won't compare. I won't compare. I won't compare. I will not judge. I will not judge. Judge not like that doesn't, that doesn't do me any good. Just being honest about why I'm doing it. The second thing, second practical solution after honesty also starts with H. This comes from C.S. Lewis. In his screw tape letters, he has this demon. And um, the demon says the other demon, listen, if somebody starts to be humble, then just point out that they're being humble, right? Um, and, you know, point this out. But then the demon says, but don't do this too often, or they'll just laugh at themselves and go to sleep. And so the second solution is humor, laughing at yourself, right? So I'm sitting here in church on Sunday. I'm looking at all these accomplished kids. I'm feeling jealous of them. And I'm like, I'm a 53-year-old guy <laughs> feeling jealous of 20-somethings. That is laughable. That is really <laughs> that is really laughable. And just the act of laughing at it also sort of puts it in its place, right? Like the demon that said, don't do this too often, or they'll just laugh at you and go to sleep, right? Then it takes all the sting out of it, takes all the barb out of it, right? I'll see someone at a bishopric and I'm like, good for you. Glad the Lord's doing that for you. Actually, maybe I've just dodged this bullet. There's, <laughs> this is, there's no shame in this, right? All right, let's work for me. Um, you know, so I just laugh. Humor. Just the second thing is just laughing at the situation, right? And the third thing, which is humility. So I feel this. I feel jealousy. I feel envious. These things happen. So then I just remind myself that my first, that I can say to myself, the Lord is the Lord, my God. And I can reorient myself towards the Lord. This is what really matters to me. And I can refocus on that. And it takes my view away from all this jealousy and envy, right? And then I can, I can also refocus on the people around me that I get to love and serve, right? Those are the real things that have substance and meaning in my life, right? Looking at somebody else or judging, those are not, those, those are useless to me. Um, in the book, I use, I use an analogy that's presented in Dante's book. And in Dante's Inferno, actually in the Paradiso, He's coming off the earth and he's going up into heaven. And as he's lifting off the earth and going into heaven, he looks down between his feet where the earth is and it gets smaller and smaller until it's a speck and then it like disappears. And I noticed that when I 
remember what really matters, my dedication, my commitment, my service towards the Lord. And when I remember the people around me that I get to love, then all of this jealousy and all this envy, it just gets smaller and smaller, and then it just pop goes away, right? Because I, I just come in contact with stuff that's more real and more substantial. Now, I'm going to come back to earth. <laughs> you know, in a few hours or days or whatever, I'm going to be in another situation. I'm going to compare. I'm going to judge. I'm going to be envious. But again, I can be honest with myself about what's going on. I can laugh at the situation. Uh, I can reorient my thinking via my humility towards the things that really matter. And for people who really don't like to laugh at stuff, and I know these people exist, another great thing that works for step number two is just gratitude. Um, just, just looking around and feeling grateful for the things that you have also takes to, tends to take sort of the sting out of envy and jealousy and tends to put those things in their place. That was really terrific where you set that up and then had very practical things that are all with, within all of our reach to do. And I love you being honest about the singles ward in Manhattan. And, um, and then I love how you just said, use your humor to sort of um, process that situation. That was a really good segment. I went with my daughter to that YSA ward in Manhattan and it was last summer. Um, could have been the summer before I lose track of these things, but I, you know, this has gone complete tangent, but I always love to go to Elders Quorum. Um, it happened to be the Elders Quorum week, and I don't say anything. I don't like to be the old guy that uses his, his time in Elders Quorum to sort of have a young group and spouts off all his wisdom. I just I don't have much wisdom, for one thing. But I was really impressed just with the honesty and the vulnerability and the authentic communication that occurred as that Elders Quorum just got in a round circle and talked about real things. and. Terrific culture often our YSA's wards have where um, the kind of, kind of things you're talking about, Sean, are the kind of things that would come naturally to a lot of YSA's yes. and um, as they're trying to do better and create um, honest, authentic um, humility and humor as part of our culture to help Latter-day Saints feel like they belong. Um, the book's, in, so that was a great segment. Um, thank you for that. The book's conclusion is about the joy of being normal. What is the joy of being normal? So this goes back to what we discussed earlier about being special. Um, and you know, sadly, I think we get a lot of mileage out of talking about how special we are, especially those darn youth. You know, it's, we're, we're just seem to be, always be telling them how darn special they are. Um, and I understand this. And, and we, we have a divine nature. We have divine potential. Um, and each of us is unique. Um, but none of us is special. None of us are special. No calling makes you special. No membership in the church makes you special. No degree, no family status. Nothing makes you special. Um, you are just normal. Um, but here's the thing. Here's the thing that happens with normal people. For every normal person in the world, um, if, only the, if there was only one normal person in the world, Christ still would have come down and died and suffered and resurrected just for that one normal, regular person. Um, that's, that's how important we are. That's, that, that's, that's our wonderful divine importance. Um, and that's every person because we're all normal. Um, and, that's, that, and it doesn't matter who you are or where you're at. That's 
that's what is really important about each of us uh, is that is that we have heavenly parents that love us, that they sent a savior for each one of us, um, and that through his atonement, we can find happiness in this life and satisfaction and joy. We can find trials that push us to really grow and force us out of our comfort zone and really push us to, to develop into the people that they want us to become. Um, and that is what it means to be normal. Um, that's helpful. Talk about, um, we often do talk about um, Latter-day Saint youth as the, cho- you know, the Royal generation special. And there's a side of me that helps. There's a side of me that even recognizes sometimes giving people those positive labels help them rise to a level that they might not rise if we just talked to them as normal. Um, any thoughts on that for a listener who's thinking, well, I want to sort of give them this bar to work towards. And to, but maybe well, you're see, also talking about anything that sort of creates enmity or right, anything right. in our language that elevates. And I think that's the pride of comparison that um, President Benson talks about, the pride of comparison. I think one of the things he talked about it, it's comparative in nature. It elevates right. people above. And so right. maybe you're helping us realize when we talk about we're special, that's comparative to other people versus just our divine heritage of heavenly parents. Yeah, because we can say each one of us is unique. That's not a problem. Uh, we can say each one of us has uh, important work that only we can do. That's everybody. It doesn't matter if you're inside or outside the church. The problem is when we tell youth, especially, that they are special, and then when they do something that's beneath their standards or something that special people shouldn't do, then they feel like a fraud. They feel like this mighty oak that's actually hollow in the middle. And on the outside, it looks big and important and sturdy, and maybe it provides shade or cover for other people. But inside, it feels like it is an empty husk. Um, and, and it can't be honest or genuine or authentic with anybody. And it's just, it's just a mess. It's a huge mess. Um, so instead of like, we don't need that. We can just be normal. That's plenty good. Um, we, can, we can remind ourselves that um, we're important. Uh, we can remind ourselves that what makes us important is that the Savior came, even if it was just for us. We can remind ourselves that we have a unique work that no one else uh, is asked to do, that we get to participate in. All of those things are wonderful. And they remind us that, again, it doesn't matter if you're in the church or out of the church. It doesn't matter any of those sorts of things. Those sorts of things, by the way, are important in the gossipy Doug world, right? That's how society keeps everybody doing stuff, right? Society wants to keep all of us working all the time, super busy, right? That's not what the Lord wants from us, right? The Lord doesn't want us doing that. The Lord wants us loving the Lord, loving who we are, the understanding and loving the mission and the role and the things that we get to do, loving the people around us and the opportunities we have to lift and build and serve them. Um, I love that. And, um, you know, I'm thinking back to the Sunday school class where, um, those, there was this inference that if you were born in the covenant, you were more righteous in the pre-earth life. And I, and I thought of reverse engineering came to my mind is I don't think we can infer anybody's station in this life and reverse reverse engineer. I think the only reverse engine engineering we can do is that we all voted for the same plan. And because of that, we're all here. And maybe that all makes us all equally special. I'm okay 
with equally special and equally unique and some of the things I think is when we're um, elevating ourselves or elevating people around us. Um, and so I think that woman in Afghanistan that is raising three kids, um, who knows where she, what she, where she was in the pre-earth life compared to me. Um, yeah, I was born in the covenant and I'm, you know, and I could go down the road of differences, but I think um, I'm equally as normal as she is and fulfilling God's mission equally, I would hope, and would stand accountable for God equal, um, hopefully, and just the way we served and what we did in our circle of influence. And I like that. I don't like things. Um, Steve Young wrote a book, um, listeners, called The Law of Love. It's at Desert Book, and I sort of involved in that book. But he talks, he, he does talk like you, Sean, when he talks about we want to feel special. Um, and we all, there's probably an inherent human need to feel special. Um, but his point, if it lifts us above other people or causes us to feel we're better, then there's enmity there. It's not consistent with um, the Christ-like attributes that we're supposed to develop, even though it's a natural feeling and we feed that. I think to your point, sometimes as parents, as in our culture, and how that may not be helpful in the long run for um, people and developing self-worth. And, and you referenced this chapter, listeners, in the book I wrote about improving Latter-day Saint culture. I talked about chapter two is measuring our progress in life by coming to Christ, not by callings. It was the most vulnerable chapter I've ever written because I just talked about how I recognize I got hardwired to measure my worth. Um, by church calling, something outside of my control. And there was so much conversation around this subject growing up that that's the way I saw developed worth in older men, role models in my life was not their Christ-like attributes that we talked about in Preach My Gospel, Chapter 6, but their callings. And it didn't mean to take away from anybody that has a major calling, um, but it's meant to um, develop self-worth on things we control. And you were honest to say you're an elder and you've never been in a bishopric, which I think would make you a high priest. And um, respect for you being honest, but that's part of our culture um, that I think we can improve. And I like doing things, Sean, we can do to improve our culture that just perhaps helps it so that we can create Zion and help everybody feel like they belong. And they don't feel marginalized in some of this language or it's not sustainable as they have more of a worldview and some of the things that we've taught culturally don't really hold up to the realities of their experiences and it causes them to question other things and dominoes start to fall and they wonder if um, they belong in the church or if it fits with their value system. More thoughts that come to your mind. Um, yeah, just, just to, to kind of circle this back to the Doug dilemma. Good. Uh, you know, the, the fact that we do go to church and we, we judge people based on their calling and we compare people based on where they're from or what they do, or we, we, we do all this based on what their knowledge is or other things like that. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's part of gossip. It's part of the way we, we want the ward to function and gossiping is part of the way that we, that we encourage everybody to do stuff, you know, and it's, it's an ugly way. Granted, it's a natural man way, you know, using uh, King Ben idea of the natural man that's an enemy to God. It's absolutely that, right? But we can, but we don't, we don't have to live by that. We can be honest about it and see it for what it is. We can laugh at the times that we are, that we fall into this. 
but then we can we can be humble and we can recalibrate our thinking so that instead of this comparison, you know, lone and dreary world, uh, natural man judgment and, and conflict in order to get people to do stuff, um, we can just focus on the Savior, uh, focus on the, the unique responsibility and role and opportunity that each of us has, and we can just go forward with faith in doing that. And I think that what happens, so one of the, this is one of the things that, that, that the church provides as an answer to the Doug dilemma. The answer to the Doug dilemma is humility towards God and humility towards each other. Um, because once we start to do this, then once everybody's focused on the Lord, understands that, you know, the, the, the place that they have, uh, works to the best of their ability with what it is that they can do, then we don't feel the need to compare as a way to get everybody to do their part, right? And over time, we can slough off this tendency to, to, to solve the Doug dilemma with gossip. Uh, and we can, we can have another foundation, another way in which we do this. Uh, but I'll tell you, so long as we're telling the youth, you know, don't do this because, you know, that's what the non-members do. You know, don't do this because it, then, then this is, this is only going to continue and it's only going to pollute uh, and clog the, the, the environment that we could have. I like that. Um, I think of one of my favorite um, Institute teachers as you're speaking, um, S. Michael Wilcox. He's been on Faith Matters and my wife and I've heard him, my wife heard him first talk about the compass concept. And this is like an old mechanical compass with foots and he talked about, you know, keep for him his fixed foot, one foot of the compass that stays steady is in as a member of the as a member of the church, but his other foot isn't right next to it. It goes way out, um, and he sees good in other religions, and he wants to learn from other religions, and he has holy envy when he sees things in other religions that maybe that he sees good the way they do things, and it doesn't cause him to pick up his fixed foot but it just enhances his life. And part of it, I think, Sean, is this humility to extend that other foot of his compass way out there and see how other religions um, maybe do Good Friday a little bit better, Easter, um, but also recognize the, our beautiful restored doctrine. And I think there's a humility in that sort of mindset and maybe a, a more stable, a more long-term um, sustainable approach to our own faith when we can s extend that other foot out there and just see good and be humble enough to do that and and see good in other traditions and and not be triggered by that or not feel a need to feel special by seeing good in other religions and seeing the way other people bring value to the world. So I thought of that a little bit as you were talking about what we can do better. Um, and I think that in addition to that, the degree to which we do reach out because we understand that the Lord is active in all of these organizations, that the Holy Ghost is inspiring people all over the place, everywhere. Um, the degree to which we don't do that um, is the degree to which we have fear instead of faith. Uh, it's the degree to which we have enmity instead of humility. Uh, it's the degree to which we want to hold on to the real thing that we've got you know, because we think that we have to hold on to it in order to remain special. But the more you try to hold on to that little thing that makes you special, the more you are absolutely going to lose it. I love that. I love fear versus faith. Um, and I think about our doctrine should allow us to do what you're 
um, inviting us to do um, from a doctrine. We should be the best at this as any faith in some ways because of our understanding of the plan of salvation. Um, they were all up there in the pre-existence together and voted for the same plan. We're all spirit children of heavenly parents that love us individually. We can have a personal relationship. And this person, whoever it is that's, you know, in a different space than we are, at the end of the day, our spiritual brother or sister. And um, so if we go to the 30,000-foot view of our doctrine and remind us of that, um, we should be able to do what you're saying, um, to live by faith and not by fear, and to see us all as normal <laughs> um, yeah. in a good way, because we all are equal children of the same heavenly parents and part of the same plan of salvation and sharing this earth life together. Um, so let, let, let me say something that's meant to just tease you a little bit and good. pull just a little bit. That is this. Yeah, we should be the best at doing this because we're special. <laughs> Very thoughtful. <laughs> See, I that's love how that. It, that's how it keeps getting in. I mean, we are just so convinced how special we are that then when we see something good, we're like, we should be the best at that too. <laughs> and that's actually your humor too. And I love that you, and I would guess you do that with your students and people around you. And it's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I think I, it's I, another I, reason to read your book is just, just to see, um, kind of look what we can do individually to improve in this space. Um, how can people get your book? We'll put it in the show oh, notes, listeners, but I go ahead and tell us where you can get it. So it is published by, by Common Consent Press. It's available on Amazon. Um, that's, I, I honestly don't know any other way to do it. I've been thinking about like, you know, selling it out of the back of my van, but, uh, but I think you're still going to just be better off through Amazon. So listeners will link to Amazon in the show notes. So you can get a copy of this book. And I have another question for you. That's more related to just comes to my mind. You are living in, um, a place you did not grow up in. Um, I don't know if I sat next to you on your plane ride from Chile after your mission. And, um, could somehow say you are going to be, you know, you're going to be, have a couple of graduate degrees and be teaching at Elon university and um, outside of Greensboro and for 20 years. Um, and it's sort of like there's younger people listening who don't know how their life is going to unfold. And um, you seem to have been open enough to open some doors that perhaps you didn't even consider on your mission ride home. So any advice just to younger people that may not be sure about how their life is going to work out and just, you know, some just are so wired in when they come home from their mission. I mean, not everybody served a mission, but they just kind of, there's no fog and they're just complete clarity on what they want to do. But I think most, you know, that's the minority. Most do not know. And they may be surrounded by people that do, and they feel like, wait a second, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And everybody else around me. So maybe you knew you would be teaching at Elon University when you flew home from Chile, but maybe not. So just talk yeah, so to I, younger so, people. Yeah, I have, I have a great story about that. Um, in the book, there are, there are a couple of different ideas about what humility means in, in one's relationship with God. Um, the, the most obvious one is like when God asks us to sacrifice something, Humility is being able to do those difficult things, right? 
But there's another side to that. And that is humility in believing God when God tells you something good that seems sort of too good to be true, or that's just like, wow, really? Um, and, and I will tell you why. I will try to not get choked up about this too, by the way. I was a solid C plus high school student. <laughs> um, I, I just, I'm, I, I realize now that I'm a social learner and like having me just learn individually was really difficult. I also found out some years ago that I'm dyslexic, so it's hard for me to read. So I should be a humanities professor who reads all day. How could this go wrong? <laughs> um, so, so I was, I, so I, I loved learning, but I just didn't do school very well. And so I started college with almost no confidence that I would be able to, to do it. And so then I was like, then I was going to, I was going to teach high school and I, I got married and that was my plan. And my wife encouraged me to teach college. And I was like, I can't do that. You know, these people, like, they know so much and you have to do all that stuff. And I don't want to get married and then have kids and then jeopardize our family going off to get a degree when I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to get a job or if I'm going to be able to complete it. And it was really difficult for me. And I, I prayed a lot about this. And my wife was super encouraging because she is amazing. Um, and But then I also felt the Holy Ghost sort of say, you can do this. You can do this. And the, uh, another side of humility is believing God when God tells you things like that, like tells you good things that can be hard to believe. Like you can have a child or you don't have to have any more children <laughs> or you can stay in the church or you don't need to stay in the church or uh, just anything that God is going to tell you. The humility to hear these good messages that sometimes we're like, well, I'm okay if God tells me to repent, but I'm not. I don't know how to hear God tell me how much my heavenly parents love me and how proud of me they are and how, how, <clears throat> how glad they are about, about all the great things that I'm doing. Um, it's just, it can be hard to hear that message. And it's, and it's really important. It's just as important as any other form of humility. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> If I would have been on the plane, um, if I'd have been on the plane, you would have said <coughs> that this is where I'd be. I wouldn't have believed you. Just too good to be true. And um, you know, without my wife's support and without just the Holy Ghost saying, "Yeah, you can do this," it, it just it just wouldn't have been able to happen. That segment was golden. You know, listeners, I. I love Elder Bednar's talk about personal revelation. He talks about some people get the light switch and there's just complete clarity um, about their path. But I think most people have a lot of fog. And he talks about you just take a step in the fog. And often that next, that next step becomes clearer and you have personal revelation. In Sean's case, he has a wonderful wife. And, and, but I love the way you weaved in humility to believe in the personal revelation you're receiving. Um, you said some really cool things. I love to learn, but I was—I didn't do school well. You're very, and I love the way you were able to recognize, and then all the voices potentially in your mind. Think, how can I get a doctorate and teach at a college level when I was a C plus high school student? I'm, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but I'm a fraud. What if they yes. only knew? Yeah. And I just love that segment for those of you that are listening, wondering, all those people with doctorate degrees and. All those, I don't want to elevate one profession versus another. They're all 
normal <laughs> needed. Um, but if you have some feelings about what um, you'd like to do, and no one else has done that in your family, your friend group, and you have some feelings about that, um, be humble enough to accept those feelings, to use Sean's language, and and be confident enough. Confidence is a sign of humility. It's it's not looking at others and trying to compare yourself, but just being confident enough. I've always felt as a business owner that I was ability and motivation were the things I was looking for, but the tiebreaker was motivation. And part of that is just quiet humility that you're motivated that you can do this. And, and I love back to your school thing that you became aware that you actually love to learn, but schoolwork, we've got a kid that is a little bit wired like you. He loves to learn, but his schoolwork is the grades that showed up on his report card. And he's found a career that really matches um, his skill set, and he's thriving in that way. And it's a career path I never imagined um, for a kid. And so sometimes as parents, we don't know <laughs> yeah. um, the right path for our kids, and we need to you know, make sure we're opening doors for them like you did with your students um, so that yeah. they can receive the personal revelation that they need to walk the road they need to walk. But your that's that was a really golden segment, Sean. Just for younger people listening, um, so thank you. Any we're at the end of this podcast. Anything you want to add, Sean? That's come to your mind. Yeah. So I I finished my PhD. I went back to my high school. Went back to one of my favorite teachers. This is back in Sterling, Virginia. Yeah, back in Sterling, Virginia. Went back to one of my teachers. Told her <laughs> I got a PhD. She looked at me like they must just be giving them out now. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah so it was it was i don't know it was really funny um yeah so i i mean it's just it's it's been a pleasure to be to to work to be on this podcast i i mean my daughters are so excited i'm on this podcast because they <laughs> listen to what to what you do and it's it's just such wonderful important work um um you know and just to be able to contribute just my little bit is it means a lot to me Thank you, Sean. And it's, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Conversation comes very natural. And thanks for your good heart, your good mind, um, your courage to write. Um, you might be a little dyslexic. And from what I know about people who are dyslexic, writing may come hard to them. So maybe oh, yeah. that gives, oh yeah, maybe that gives vision to others that want to write and just have to do that. And in a way that works for them, surround themselves perhaps with people who can compliment them so that the content in their brain can make it onto the pages to bless the lives of others. But um, Dr. Sean Tucker, we're really glad to have you on the podcast. And please check out his book, listeners. It sounds like a terrific book. And this is Richard Osler and Sean Tucker signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.